Yes, John, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, go ahead in Utah. Hey. This is Johnny. Hey, now, Howard. Hey, now. Hey, uh, I just got my first radio gig being a DJ Sunday nights, and I'm pretty, you know, nervous about it. Uh, I just want to know if any of you guys had advice or something. You mean you you got a job at a radio station, not one of these dopey podcasts? This episode of Dopey on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit is brought to you by our friends at Aloe Recovery, located in sunny Southern California in Malibu and Silver Lake. Aloe exists to help addicts. If you're an addict and you're using, I strongly recommend checking out Aloe. Not only do they have ridiculously amazing amenities like surfing and horseback riding and sweat lodges, and amazing sound bath meditations. They also have a multidisciplinary care team with a psychiatrist, masters and doctoral level therapists to treat co-occurring and underlying mental health problems, dual diagnosis, even SMI. Uh, the reason that, um, that we decided to work with Aloe was because they have such uh, a, you know, they really believe in offering addicts um, respect. You know, I've been to so many detoxes uh, and so many facilities where I was not noticed and I was not respected and uh, they wanted my money and they didn't care if I leave and they didn't really care what happened to me. Bob and Evan and Bob and the people at Aloe really care about the addicts that come through. They did this to create something different for sick and suffering addicts and that's why uh, we have them on Dopey. So if you're fucked and... um, you want help and you want to go to California, you should totally check out Aloe. Now here is the show. Hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast about drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. I'm Dave. Crazily enough, I'm at my father's kitchen table with baseball legend, bad boy, wild boy, coke boy, ne'er-do-well, former opiate addict and legend, Lenny Dykstra. Hey, what's up, man? I love uh, love the uh, love the apartment. That's where you grew up, right? This is, you love the middle-class Jewishness of the kitchen? Is it? This is as middle-class <laughs> Jewish as it gets. That's funny. Well, I mean, um, middle-class, I tried to, my whole life was about getting out of the middle, so... Um, but this doesn't look so middle to me. This is um, in Chelsea. When I grew up here, though, it wasn't that nice. It was fucking bad. It was Chelsea. like, yeah, it was rough when I grew Chelsea, up. Like, it's like there, there's. I think real... there's better. There, there's some areas that are not real high end. It's high end here now. It's just I came up. Uh, I grew. I was born in 1974. I lived here until. 92 and that's when like the gay influx to the neighborhood really happened 
Uh, I did dope down the street. Yeah. I smoked a lot of weed here. I didn't even do a, a drug or a touch of beer until I got to the major leagues. Really? Yeah. I mean, you're talking to a guy that had one friend growing up um, because I need someone to play catch with. And never went to a dance. I never went to a party. And, you know, my way out of the middle was baseball. And, and so I made up for it at the end, though. Yeah, you did. And you grew up in Canada? No, I grew up in California. Where'd you my, grow up? In, in the um, Anaheim area. See, I'm terrible. Yeah, I have no so research. By, I think you well, grew up by, by Disneyland. But you said, I said, I'm are Canadian. you Jewish before? And you yes. said, no, I'm Canadian. Yeah, well, my grandfather and my uncle played in the NHL. Um, wow. So they lived in Canada. So I'm adopted. Uh, so my last name was Leswick. So my grandfather and uncle, they both won in the Stanley Cup, and they, they were all stars. And... And so hockey was in my blood, but growing up, they had their son who married my mom, so I grew up in Southern California. And how was that? It was great. I mean, like, it didn't matter where I grew up, um, because I had one thing that I was going to do, and that was, you know, play baseball in the big leagues. When did you realize that that was going to be your thing? I was about 12, you know, and some, I remember some father or some, some, you know, adult came up to me and said, you know, you really have a gift. Like, how do you know where the ball's going to be hit and this and that? And so you knew when you were a kid that you wanted to be a fucking ball player, that that was going to be what you did. And you and sports probably were, came totally naturally to you. Well, absolutely. Well, I want to be rich. That was, was, was the first goal to be rich or was the first goal to be a ball player? Be the ball, ball player. And then... Once you get to the big leagues, you see all these guys making all this money. And then money at the beginning wasn't about it wasn't about money at the beginning. It was about playing baseball and, and winning and being in New York and I mean like like I won a World Series in New York, man. Like and the most surreal thing of all that happened wasn't so much winning the World Series. It was a, it was a ticker tape parade. That was crazy. Well, you have to deal with the fact that. You won a World Series with one of the cursed teams of the universe. Yes. I mean, I'm the biggest. I'm not a baseball fan. Like yeah. I grew up, my house was a Yankee house. Yeah. My dad wanted to tell my my dad stuck around to meet <laughs> yeah, Lenny Dykstra before he left, and he was very sweet. And uh, he good took, looking dude. Not, not that uh, I'm gay or not. Oh, he's very, no, he's very handsome man. Yeah, he is. Um, see, Lenny Dykstra likes my dad. I like to hang out and just have him, like draw lure some people over for me. You know. Oh, some some potential customers. Yeah, you know, all I gotta do is get them in front of me. I can sell. You could sell. You could you could have you could pimp my dad out. That's it, man. See what his going rate is. But we're gonna we're gonna get to that because that's some crazy fucking shit. But uh, but first, you I mean, the Mets hadn't won a title since what sixty eight or sixty nine sixty nine, and so that team in eighty six. I was in sixth grade. And I went to you know elementary school on the Upper East Side, and mm. everybody was a Mets fan, right. and fucking you and Gary Carter and Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden yeah. and Wally Backman were great heroes in New York. And what was it like to be so young, uh, and then a hero in, in a city as big as New York? It was like I said. I mean, there's a, a lot of players. New York is not the city for them because New York, the fans are educated. The fans let you know if you play well, and they let you know if you don't play well. The fans, we, we had a great relationship. When I got traded to Philadelphia, the same thing. They took a liking to me because I was an underdog. So you remember, you know, 80% of the population out there 
life isn't easy for them. And so, you know, they don't want to see some pretty boy, six foot two, that everything comes easy to. And so I was a fighter and scratcher, and I wasn't supposed to make it to the major leagues. And Why were you the underdog, though? Well, I'm too small, number one. I mean, I'm only 5'9", and everyone said I was too small. That's the main reason. But, um, you know. And that's also why you were a fan favorite, though, too. Yeah, because, and I played hard. See, so, like, what, what I did is when I played... See, I realized early on I was in the business of entertainment, so of putting people in the seats. So, so you know, when I would get done playing, what I would do is I would take like a minute or two minutes. I'd go sit in my locker, and I'd say to myself, "Okay, if I were a fan, would I have paid money to watch me play tonight?" Right. And then the answer to that was yes. Even if I took an over four, because you're going to take over fours. But if you do it the right way, I could say yes, because I always played hard and played right. There's only one time I didn't say yes, and that's kind of a crazy story. Well, tell us really quick. <laughs> well, so as I got older, and this is when I was in Philadelphia, um, Fergosi, my manager, um, would give me Sunday day games off after Saturday night games because you know, it gives you more time to recover. And we were in Florida, and there was no dome, and in, in, in the day games there, the fucking heat, dude, the rain, it's like, and, you know, this is where I'm at the peak of, I'm taking more shit than, like, I mean, I have to check the scoreboard to see what the count is, but anyways, it was Saturday night, we got done, so I go out and get blasted, because I'm not playing Sunday, so I walk in the, stumble in the clubhouse Sunday, and I look at the lineup, and I'm leading off. I look in the manager's office and Fergus has got a little grin on his face. I was like, you motherfucker. Because he put you in that. Yeah, because we were playing bad and he Pearl Harbored me is what he did. Why did he do it? Just because we were playing bad and he just wanted, he wanted to shake things up. Yeah. All right. So, so now I say, wait a second. There's not enough drugs. There's not enough. I can't play. I'm, I'm not going to. I can't. I, so what am I going to do? So what I did, I said, Okay, you know what? I'm gonna get thrown. I'm gonna get run out. I'm gonna get thrown out of the game. And Eric Gregg was behind the plate. Remember, big fat Eric Gregg. He was a, a umpire. He's passed now, but he was a big, big, big umpire. So I know I forgot who was pitching for Florida. First pitch, he throws right down the middle and calls it a strike. I said, "Fuck you, motherfucker! You fat fuck! This that!" I went off on just went nuclear on him. Uh-huh. And he said, "Lanny, I already know it." Jimmy already told me. He said, if I'm going to be out here in this heat for two and a half hours, you're going to be out here in this heat for two and a half so hours. So he knew you were trying to get kicked out of the game. For Ghost, he, was, he, ran, he ran like I did. I mean, you know, when I played, I, I ran, you know, I, I partied hard and I played hard. And For Ghost, he, yeah, he didn't know. He knew. And, and so I ended up hitting a double that game somehow by luck. It was a bloop double. I literally got to second base. And I... I I couldn't get air because, you know, when you fuck with opiates, they really fuck with your respiratory. Your lungs, yeah. You know, you know you're know, you always trying to catch your breath. So, like, remember, it's a day game, and it's like 190 degrees in Florida. And, like, I couldn't catch my breath. I started panicking. And, you know, the shortstop walks over and saying, I said, get the fuck out of here. You know, and so, like, I'm just saying, like, has anybody ever died like after hitting a double in baseball? <laughs> no, I'm saying then I can't read it. I'm you know, you start panicking, I'm starting to catch my breath. And I just said, Don't die out here. Don't 
die. I'll never forget it. You said you hadn't touched a drug until you were in the major leagues. Had you had you drank? Or drank no. Okay, so so walk me through that. When did when did partying become part of your life? Well, when I got to the Mets, um, I had some beers, you know, in the big leagues. Remember, it was all about getting to the big leagues. So but in college, you didn't have a drink. I didn't, didn't go to college. You didn't I, have. A, I got drafted right out of high school. Okay, in high school, you didn't party with your no, friends. Not at all. Didn't even have friends. Had one. Who was the catch buddy? Um, some guy that. Um, his name is Glenn Fairchild. Okay, I wanted to be a player, but but the bottom line is is um, is that was my way out of the middle. Everybody has certain gifts, and my gift was playing baseball. And, and my gift is just to have the greatest recovery podcast of all time. Yeah, and, and that's and you're doing a great thing because um, um, there's so many people out there right now walking around that that are trapped in, in, in a different kind of prison and, and I'm referring to opiates you know and um, I know that world so well and know so much about it um, but before we get that I want to hear the, the beginning of your drugs and drinks in, in, in New York yeah well the drinks again was never a big I was never a big drinker because I was a leadoff hitter and I couldn't like drink these, you know, my teammates could drink beer after beer, and would they drink during the games? Um, Was that no, a thing? Sometimes, maybe on rain delays or something, you know, to kick okay. in amphetamine, you know. Like, um, I think at the end of my career, I might have, you know, had some. You know, see, playing on the East Coast, the fans don't realize um, when you play on the West Coast, okay. Um, you know, you're going to play every night, so you're not going to get rainouts. So, so when you're a drug addict and you're on the east coast and there's rain delays because remember so for instance my highest batting average at, 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 at the stadium I had my highest curve batting average was in Houston because they had a dome see so I was a chemist I knew exactly when to launch I'd take my first 30 milligram dexedrine okay like at 3 and I'd kick it with another you know one around four thirty, and then I would take the five million the hearts, you know, the dex. This one before Adderall, and so I had this whole you know system, and and again, like the Elvis Presley of baseball. Yeah, but the amphetamines, you know, were they they've been part of baseball for a long time, forever, right? Yeah, and that's again what, equating it to entertainment, just like they were in entertainment, they were in sports. But as a as a fan, you don't know no. that everybody's on them, and you know. Once you go there, and once you get them to go out there naked, as we call it, you know, to go without it, it's like you're not doing it because you know there's something that can help you, okay? right? And if you don't do it, you're fucked. Yeah, and you, and then you say to yourself, "What the fuck? What, what am I doing, man? I could have taken that because you know you're traveling, you're on the road." And I remember playing in Frisco, and Dusty Baker, the manager, is cool. He said, hey, um, you got any more of them L.A. turnarounds? I said, what? He said, you know, because players know who's, who's, who's lit up, who's not. And I said, what? He says, that shit you're taking? He said, man, you could fight L.A., turn around and play again. He said, because I was saying, you know, I had some, I was actually had the Black Beauties in. Those are hard. They don't even make those anymore. That's an old, old speed. Yeah, it's called the Soxin or something. But, um... Yeah, but I, again, amphetamines have been a part of baseball, but not no more. Dr- drugs are now out of baseball. Tell me who is the first person that gave you amphetamines in baseball. Is that where it started with amphetamines or did it start with beer? 
No, I mean, the beers I just drink nor like lightly. I never was a heavy drinker. Uh, still not. Um, like, I just, you'll never see me drunk. You'll never see me like, um, it's just I can't. But, but see, I was more of like, okay, it's FDA approved, it's regulated, so it's got to be fine. But who gave it to you? Like, how oh, did Larry it Boa was the first one that gave one to me. Who's that? Larry Boa. Okay. Larry Boa had a long career, and he was at the end of his career. And he said, hey, kid, try one of these. It know? always starts with, hey, kid, try one of these. Yeah, right? yeah. And like the next thing I know, I'm fucking zooming, dude. We were in, we were in Candlestick Park. Uh-huh. And it was cold. You know, can't, the, some of the coldest games I've ever like, played it was in August in Candlestick Park. It was crazy. It's cold at night in San Francisco, it was, right? It was there, man, right off that bay. But, um, yeah, he said, try one of these, and I forgot what he gave me, but it was some kind of, you know, we call them greenies. They call them greenies in baseball. And, they, you know, again, they've been around, though, forever. They used to throw it in their, in their Gatorade. And, but, but, like I said, baseball is cracked down now um, to the point where you have to have all kinds of doctor sign-offs. So, so drugs are, it's, it's pretty much drug-free. So nobody's taking drugs in baseball at this point. Well, I mean, got fringe players that, that that are on their way out and have nothing to lose. You know, you might as well load up. Um, and there's guys that are taking them that that are ADD. And the first year that so so what baseball did is they did the drug testing. They kind of did it very slowly. They ramped up. So the very first year they did it, and, you know, 370 guys claimed they were ADD. Because of the Adderall it, or whatever. Yeah, it got more stringent and stringent and stringent and stringent. We had to get two doctors. Then you see the MLB's doctor. But when they first started, you know, it was like, okay, you know, you can only take them if you have ADD, da, 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 if you have a prescription. So, like I said, half the players, or 700 players in the major leagues, half of them were all of a sudden had ADD. Right, right, right. Yeah, it was, it was kind of funny. But, I mean, once you once you get that, you know, that, I mean, it's speed. Yeah. The rush. Yeah, I mean, it's speed. You get the energy. You're tired. You're beat up. It helps you overcome things. And to say it doesn't help you would be lying. Right. But, but long term, it, it, it's, again, like, I mean, they call them drugs for a reason. If, if you even just look at the word and it's the way it's spelled, D-R-U-G-S, it's so fucking ugly. You know, it is an ugly word. It's an ugly word, man. It's, it's weird how that is. I mean, drugs is sound, um, but again, um, I just did what I had to do to get on the field. But but what happened was it led to me doing it off the field. Meaning, how did that happen? What was that transition yeah, like? How did the party start off the field? Because you were be you'd be amped up when you got off the field. Well, what happened is, and more about the off season. So. When, so when when you start taking opiates, let's say, okay, meaning because um, because opiates, there's a feeling of uh, euphoria where sure. where when you first start opiates, you literally like someone can tell you, you know what, your family just went down in a plane crash, and you'd say, you know what, we'll figure it out, right? It's all good, we'll figure it out. But on, on the flip side. When you abuse opiates and 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 everybody's different for you know what I mean is it's different for everybody when you cross that imaginary line. At the end of the day, though, what happens is you're in the same car going down the same road, 
with the same destination, and, and that's a dead end. Meaning, so if you want to get there faster, take heroin. If you want to get there slower, take Vicodin. But eventually, you're going to get there. Right. And by the way, there's no exits on that road. You can't say, I don't feel good. I want to turn around. No, no, you're going to pay. Okay? And, and so, you know, when you know, it happened to me, you know, I was taking them because the trainers gave them to me and they worked. Well, what was, why did the trainer get, you were like, I'm sore, I have aches and pains, whatever? Yeah, you know, what happens as a player, I have a whole th- a chart of, of performance of players when they hit, like, in their 20s and then they hit 30, they go straight down. It's not because they want to be bad players, they're not trying as hard, they're physically not capable of performing at the same level they could in their 20s. And my teammates, I would watch them drink 20 beers a day to take their pain away, and I'm like, I can't do that. I'm, I'm a leadoff hitter. So I said to the trainer, I said, like, there's got to be something, man. I mean, isn't, he said, well, try one of these. There's a little white pill. Turned out to be a 5-milligram Vicodin. Right. And which at least, you know, put my cereal at the end, you know. Um, but, but that being said, I literally thought I reinvented the wheel. When that when that hit you, I it was nineteen ninety three. Yeah, the first I, mean, I time took you had one pill, had one drink, and fucking you know. So I, I was uh, you know I had a head, I had a head chain, had a little bit of of a buzz, but but I was able to re- rebound and, and play and show up and and that worked for a long time. Okay, and and next thing you know, like anyone that's been there does know, um, I started waking up like. Like with sweats, you know, and like I was like, I didn't know what the fuck was happening to me, and so it got bad. So I just signed a big contract with Philadelphia. So I was kind of scared to like. How big was the contract? Thirty million. Yeah, yeah that's crazy. Yeah, see, well, that's, they make that a year now, but but what I'm saying though is, it was a six million dollar contract for four, five years. But but where I'm going with that is. I knew something was wrong, but I was afraid that the Phillies would find out. So, like, I went and looked up all these addiction specialists. And so when I went to visit them, I put on, like, like disguises. What would you do? you have a fake like, mustache, mustache and stuff? Mustache, whole shit, you know. It was fucking hilarious. And then I latched on to the third guy, the first to get the last guy. Well, how long were you taking the Vicodins before you started sweating, before you started realizing that you had an issue? About a year Okay, and you were taking them every day. Yeah, every day, and then I started taking them in the off season. Because remember, when you get to that place, when you when you there's a place there's 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 a certain euphoria feeling, like I mean, like you know, as, as you know, like you know, you have your if you take a line and draw it, and you put normal right there. So when you like. The, the dopamines in your brain or the feel good part in your endorphins when when like you work out or you see something or you have an orgasm or whatever you kind of bounce up into the feel good area and bounce back to normal but you don't shoot up like you do when you take a handful of pain pills or dope and stay there yeah, yeah I mean, meaning so you shoot up to a place that's called euphoria where you're literally high and it's a feeling that you again try to catch and you try to catch you keep trying to figure out a different way and you want to keep it I remember when I first tried heroin when I first tried heroin um, I got sick but when I second tried heroin I was like I want to feel like this as often as I can and but I was like scared 
But then it would be the more I did it, the more I realized to not be on heroin would be a problem for me. And I needed to stay on it. I mean, forget about the withdrawal and forget about this, the actual, uh, you know, not the withdrawal, you know, the, the not taking it. I wanted to be that high. To not be that high didn't seem like the way to live. Again, when you're, when you're dependent on, on a drug, and especially on opiates more than any drug, because opiates are physical, like, you spend half your time managing your fucking pills, okay? You don't have enough to last me. Um, but at the end of the day, um, unless somebody's been in opiate withdrawal, um, it's it's indescribable because you, you look at yourself in the mirror and you don't, like, look that bad. Like, you don't... But, but to the feeling inside, it's almost like there's a fire inside. And you have no energy. I mean, it's unexplainable. Most of our, our, our fans who call themselves the Dopey Nation or who we call the Dopey yeah, Nation, yeah. like a lot of them are clean. A lot of them are using. A lot of them um, know what it's like to go through opiate withdrawal. And I know what it's like to go through opiate withdrawal. And I would say opiate withdrawal, it's like the worst flu except... It comes because you don't do dope. It comes because you can't get drugs, and you, and like you know that you're going to get better if you do, which is the worst part because yeah. you're basically depriving yourself from feeling okay. Exactly, and, and the, the thing about it is is, um, it's it's not like like you can say I'll fight through this. So what happened was. I found the doctor, and, and then his name is Dr. Berman, and he tried to detox me. This was before they had buprenorphine and, and, and suboxone. And, suboxone. And, stuff, yeah. um, and so the way he detoxed me was with methadone, okay? Which I was on methadone the for five or six years. The worst drug in the world, six-year bones. So I, I'd get to, he was a great doctor, by the way. He saved my life. Um, and But I'd get to the end, and the fire was still burning to the point where I just... Buzzed, and I'd go, I'd go to my bolt to my pharmacist, get you know twelve Vicodin and swallow them all at once, and just go lay down on the uh, you know this is play park I used to go to, and just let the, let them get in my bloodstream and like get out of withdrawal. You always just took the pills orally. You never sm- snorted them or smoked no, them or shot them or anything. No, I've never put a needle in my arm. And um, again, I, I you know I had a lot of money then, so I didn't really need to. You just take the pills. Yeah, I took the pills and I started snorting Dilaudid though at the end. You started snorting Dilaudid at the end. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. Before yeah. we jump into into how you got off opiates, I'm just curious about the Mets in '86. Yeah, like that's like a legendary team, but it's also like a legendary drug using team. Well, I mean, I think you know my reputation. Yeah, at least. is that bullshit? It's kind of like you know he caught a six foot fish and then turned into a twelve foot fish. And so you're saying that Daryl and, and Dwight weren't swimming in pools of cocaine? No, I think they were, they were doing a lot. It was Powder City with them guys, but we never saw it. I never saw cocaine. You didn't? So you weren't snorting cocaine? No, no. With the Mets, I didn't do any drugs. I, I mean, the Mets, all I did was um, drink a little bit. I didn't need drugs. I mean, until like, the end of my career with the Mets when Boa you know, gave me an amphetamine. But again, that was here and there because I was still young, man. Hey, How close knit a team was it? It was close. We had a good... See, that, that team was so good because it had the blend of veteran players with young players. And... Um, but, but as far as, like, the big party, that was our Phillies team in 1993. 
we were all fucking lit up and fucking nobody wanted a part of us, man. Steroids, amphetamines, <laughs> and plus the fans, and, and like nobody wanted to play us because we were all, I mean, again, I was like, no one even needed to go to a pharmacy. I could fill any script any people wanted filled. You know? How would that work? I mean, I just I had like five or six people on the payroll, and you know, they'd be going to doctors and and consistently because you know money has the ability to put you in a position where you can make it makes it easier for you to continue to take the drugs. Of course, I mean, I had a hard time finding drugs a lot of the time, and I was poor. You know what I mean? But I still could keep my fucking habit. You were yeah. a very, very wealthy man with a million doctors on the end of uh, the string. Yeah, and but but at the end of the day, here's the thing: it doesn't matter if you're a professional major league baseball player making millions of dollars, or you're a, a, a guy living on the street. You know. Opiates don't discriminate, okay? And so at the end of the day, you're going to be at the same place as whether you're a millionaire or whether... See, I always was just... I came from this place, I'll figure it out. I... I'm not like the rest of these people. I, I'll, find the, I'll find the loophole and find my way in that'll work. So after trying that like 10 times, you realize... You have higher lows and lower highs each time because your receptors of your brain remembers. So, so now it became to the point where, like, you, you literally, like, okay, do you want to just bang your head against the wall? Because <laughs> that's what you're doing. Right. And you know that. So, so for me. Well, the drugs stop working, is what you mean. They stop, then they stop working, but you, you think that. Because you take a little break, you start back up, that you're going to be okay, and people that shoot heroin die on that. Because you think you're going to get as high as you did, or you can handle what you used to handle right. without and a tolerance. Exactly. So, so, but at the end of the day, what I went through to get off of opiates, like, if I see an opiate, it makes me sick. Right. I mean, like, they're disgusting to me, like, I... Because I remember, I mean, the pain, I remember what I went through, and I also know what's waiting for me. When you cross that line, your endorphins stop working, so now you're solely dependent on the fake. And again, I call it like the bully, meaning, so, you know, the the human body is an amazing piece of equipment, and, and it'll fight, it'll fight for you a long time. Your endorphins will keep churning, and what happens is, you know, your receptors, they, they keep cleaning out, so there's a pathway for the, for the drug to get to, to, you know, to that feel-good part of your brain. But when they quit on you, okay, and, and they'll, they'll fight for a long time, but eventually they say, we fucking quit. Right. Like, we're tired of getting our ass kicked by this bully. Okay, and, and that's the fake one. That's the, the, the Vicodin or the heroin. And, and so when they shut down, now that hole starts getting smaller and smaller and smaller and it becomes almost like a pinhole so you're trying to jam as much all you're trying to do is get back to normal you're not fucking high you just want to stay out of being dope sick you just don't want to be sick yeah i mean because like and like that's your life okay every day trying to stay away and trying to figure out how not to get dope sick and how often would you if you're on the road with the phillies how often would you run out of pills never all right, so you weren't getting dope sick. No, but I was still sick. I mean, because we haven't gotten into the stomach problems. How many times do you have to go to the bathroom, the constipation, the, 
all the nightmares and side effects that go with it. Right. I mean, I mean there's so much more than just... And in terms of the pills, your pill was Vicodin. That was the one that had you. That started me. And then, you know, I, you know, I get smarter. I mean, meaning... Was like, it Percocets and Dilaudid? I or? went through all that, but I ended with Dilaudid because Dilaudid I could snort, and, and, and they were straight... That's synth- is a, they give the cancer patients straight synthetic um, heroin. Yeah, so Dilaudid was the uh, first opiate I took, and I, oh, was it? I it just blew my mind in college. Somebody gave me some pills. They're hard to get, man. Yeah, well, I was I was I was lucky, yeah, <laughs> so to speak. They're hard to get. I was obviously not lucky, yeah. but like I thought I was lucky, and I, I and, and that was the the drug that everybody wanted to steal in the movie Drugstore Cowboy when, yeah, when he yeah. could get his Dilaudid. So right. I was like, holy shit, it's Dilaudid. Yeah, now now it's um, you know what's killing people is them them. them Patches, um, the fentanyl, fentanyl, right? And mm-hmm. and again, anybody that thinks they can beat opiates um, is lying to themselves. And it's only going to end bad. It's well, you can beat it by by giving up. No, no, beat it, meaning thinking they have the solution to take them and they're going to be okay. Right? Like they're they're not. They, they're, look, their blood's just as red as ours. Okay. There, there'll be a point when they cross that line too, and the opiates now turn on them, okay, and their body turns on them, and they're in that same prison that you've been in and I've been in, and it's a different kind of prison. It's almost worse than the prison, um, real prison, because of the physical pain. And I'm not a pussy either. Yeah. I mean, but it's to the point where you you literally will do anything to put the fire out. That's why I say whoever sells fucking dope, who like dope dealers are stupid because like someone will shoot you. Like you're in such withdrawal and pain. Give me them fucking things. You'll shoot them. You know what I mean? And, and again, um, it's kind of, again, it's, it's a touch and go subject, but our, you know, like the government had to crack down on how they were writing the scripts, but they've, Again, like they always do, they went overboard and made it so hard for doctors and so dangerous for doctors to write. So people that are getting opiates can't get them, so they end up going to heroin. And, you know, I was at a couple of rehabs, and I was with these, you know, clean-cut, rich kids, and, and I'd say, like, did you ever picture yourself putting a needle in your arm? And every one of them said, no fucking way. But they, that's where they ended up. Right. I never pictured myself sticking a needle in my arm either, and that's where I ended up. How many times did you try to get off before you got off? Oh, numerous, man. And then there were times that, you know, at the beginning I'd get off and, and um, think, okay, you know, I did good. I took a month off. Now I can do it again. You know, and then... Right, right. right you reward to, yourself to go back. back. But it's back to the same place. And so eventually, like... Only a fucking idiot would just keep going. Meaning because you know what's... See, when you know what's waiting for you, I knew what was waiting for me if I went back again. Now I'm talking after like 10 times and saying, okay, I'm going to do it different this time. Okay, I'm only going to take two and then two. I'm going to monitor it. I'm going to do this. It's all bullshit. Nobody, the ween is impossible. It's all bullshit. At right. the end of the day, man, if you're on opiates, you're going to pay. And there's going to be a price, and it's a heavy price, yeah, because it's physical and mental, and, 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 and soul sucking. Yeah, yeah, and it sucks the life out of you. You have no desire, you have no energy, you lose your um, the, your drive. It's so. What did you do? How did you finally get off of it? So 
with, with Dr. Berman, you know, I said to him, like, I can't fucking live like this, man. Like, you know, we kept trying to detox. And I said, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be something I can do. And he said, well, there is something, but it's dangerous. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, there's there's a new procedure um, that's out there, and but it's not in this country. I said, well, where is it? And he said, Israel. I said, isn't that where they're fucking blowing up motherfuckers every day? And it was right in the heat of the like, 90s, you know, in the late 90s. And he said, yeah. And I said, okay. And he said, you'd only be the second patient in the world to do it. I said, well, did the first one live? You know, and he said, yeah. <laughs> and I said, okay. And he said, um, and it's a quarter million dollars. I don't give a fuck about the money. So he said, yeah, it's risky. Like, I suggest you don't do it. I said, I'm fucking doing it. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I booked a plane on LL Airlines that night. <clears throat> you know, hired my fucking Israeli hit squad to pick me up. And, you know, I did it alone, okay? And what was it? It's, it was, it was, it was, it turned out to be what's now rampant out there. It's called rapid detox. Do they still even do it? I remember when yeah, it's, I was, yeah, it's deep, everywhere. When I was deep in my addiction, I'd always be like, I just want that rapid opiate well, the uh, thing is, detox. Not, it, well, it's funny you asked that. It, it's not what everyone sells it to be like, oh yeah, man, they put you to sleep for 10 hours and you wake up opiate free. I thought they should put you to sleep for like three days. Yeah, no, it was like 10 hours and they fill you with naltrexone and, but but you, you don't wake up like oh man like I'm no you wake up like you went ten rounds with fucking Tyson right because look but but and remember it takes a while for your endorphins to start trusting you again meaning the reason why it takes a while because like they kept fighting for you early on and bouncing back but but now they don't trust you i'm talking about your natural endorphins that 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 keeps you out of withdrawal the way you feel now the way i feel now that we don't i'm not thinking about a pill i'm not thinking about okay when do i got to take my next order do i have enough opiates or or where are they do that meaning that whole insanity it's insane it's, it's but but it's insane because the price on the other end is so heavy, meaning the feeling of, of, of being sick is, you know. But, but again, when, when I went there, I mean, I cried prior to that one time in my life. And that was when I was eight years old. My mom wouldn't let me play in a little league game because see, I had a high fever. And I was like, okay, cry. But I never cried. And, like, Pain. Well, what happened was, on my way over to Israel, I got fucking hammered, okay? I mean, on the plane. What'd you, know, you take? Drink, drink, took everything, any, anything, everything. And so when I got there, you know, my security picked me up. I said, take me to my doctor, okay? And it was a very, when I got to Israel, man, it was, like, there's no high buildings. It's kind of, it's, it's much different like almost poor looking but they take me there and I walk in and it's like it's like a house kind of like this and I walk in and all I see is the back of a guy's head his feet up on the window seal smoking a cigarette and I said excuse me um he turns around he's got scars fucking 
torn up burns to the cigarette and I was like what the fuck and I said like am I gonna be okay like like, was he the doctor he was the doctor I nicknamed him Dr. God and so something came over me man like cause I was in another country I was getting ready to go do a procedure no one's done except one other person and I, I just broke down you know, and started like crying, and he came over to me, and he kind of pinned me up against the wall, and I still remember his Israeli cigarette breath, you know. And he said, and he looked me right in the eyes, "I'm not gonna let you die." And it was like powerful, bro. I can't right. explain it. It was like so. I nicknamed him Doctor God. Next thing you know, fast forward, I'm like in the fucking hospital bed, and they put a diaper on you. Okay. Uh-huh. And I hear all this Hebrew speak. I don't know what they're speaking. And at the very right before they put me under, I just remember Doctor God putting his hand like on my shoulder and saying, "You're going to be all right." And then after I woke up, I mean, I, I lived, but I couldn't. I couldn't even go to the bathroom. I mean, it took me three days just to move. Man, I was I was on the Red Sea, and. You know, someone said Egypt was across. You know, and but eventually I went to Old Town and got to see where Jesus was born. I didn't know he was born in ten different places. You know, yeah, right. The big tourist deal. Of course. So when after you did it, how did you? You felt like shit. How did you feel? I felt like shit, man. But but as you know, as days time passes and and you stayed in Israel how long? Uh, about two weeks. All right, so that's enough time to know that you can live without. Yeah, no. Again, you know, I started getting a little stronger and stronger, and and again, you know, my endorphins, my you know, my body, they started because remember, they stopped trusting me. I mean, they quit on me. They said, "Fuck you, man. We keep fighting for you. We keep fighting for you, and you keep bringing this bully back and beating the shit out of us." So we quit. So to get their trust back, it takes time. So they slowly come back, and you slowly start getting, you know, becoming better, and you start feeling better. And, and then eventually, you know, they trust you, and now you're firing on all cylinders, and you're back to normal. That being said, if I started using today, after I've been off, I've never taken an opiate since 1998. And, and, and I can say that... Um, Proudly, because only a fucking idiot would do that. I already know what's waiting for me. I well, there's lots of addicts who are, you know, maybe they're not the brightest bulbs in the bunch. But maybe they're not to, idiots, but they can't not do it again. How did you not take another pill? Because because I'm not the I'm not the smartest guy either. But I'm not. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out. Each time you do it, you have what one day you get high one day. So you're saying 98 is when the last time you took the pill? 98, uh, yeah. And, and like I said, I just went through some extensive oral surgery. And, and like when the doctor, he didn't know my past, when he wrote the script, I said, throw that away. Didn't even think about it. It's not even an option for me because I know what's waiting on the other end. Right. I've been there. I've, I, if anybody could have beat opiates, it would have been me. Had all the money, had the best doctors, had you know everything figured out. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who you are; they don't discriminate. You can have all the money in the world, you can be, but at the end of the day, you're going to lose. You can't beat them. So after all that happened, 
were you still drinking? Did you ever do coke? Did you ever do other drugs after all that? Because you got involved in some crazy stuff after that. Well, I mean, like, I never was a big... The other drugs that I did was more, like, for party, and I was still young. Um, like, what would you be doing? I mean, you know, do a rail off a chick's head or something, you know? But I was never, like... Um, it was never Powder City for me. I never shot anything. Um... I remember trying ecstasy one time, um, and it was fucking, it was great, actually, and it was so funny, I was with one of my teammates. Who were you with? Uh, I can't say the guy's name. Was it? Okay. Yeah, but it was, another, it was a teammate, and my drug dealer in Beverly Hills' name was Dino, perfect fucking drug dealer, and, you know, he'd bring us our, our blow and our, you know, whatever. I didn't smoke pot. I never smoked pot. I smoke pot even today. I feel like a two-year-old can kick my ass. Right. I don't know how. I don't get it. How do people, like, people get It affects it. different people differently. I mean, literally, like, a two-year-old can kick my ass, dude. But but anyway, so Dino, he says, I say, hey, dude, what's that pill with that Mercedes emblem on it? He said, that's X. I said, what's, what is that? He said, X, bro? You don't know what X is. Hollywood, dude, you know? I said, no. He says, oh, man, you got to try X, man. He says, but look, if you've never taken it, I suggest you take half. I looked at my buddy, and I said, this fucking got half. I said, we never taken half of fucking anything. I'll take fucking two. Anyways, when we took it, it was such a trip because I was putting on this party at the Beverly Hills Hotel, and it was my party, but we got on the couch, and I said to him, like, dude, like, are you feeling anything? And he said, drink orange juice, all that bullshit, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, fuck that. But I said, like, I don't know if I'm feeling anything. And he said, I, I don't either. Next thing you know, like, three hours go by, and I get a call, and it's my limo driver. He's got my car out there, and he says, you know, Mr. Texas, I've been here for, you know, I'm here. He comes, and he said, I'm coming to the door. He knocks on the door, and I just fucking start laughing my ass. Like that laugh that you'd pay money for. Yeah. You know that laugh that you can't stop laughing? Yeah, yeah the hysterical. Oh, yeah. I mean, you'd give the best. Like, you would pay for that laugh. Yeah. And it was so funny, man. Like we could not get moving. And I remember the next day when we were both flying back home, we'd, we'd been there a while. And we, you know, we had some extra pills. And cause that night I said, fuck this, man. You can have mine. But the next day it was like, Hey, like, you said you didn't want your pills. I'll take them, you know? But see, the thing with ecstasy was I didn't realize is it's because of the MDA. It's not a drug you can take daily. No. You become like the crypt keeper. Right. Yeah. Because it really fucks with your endorphins. Oh, dude. And your serotonin. You really, and you start looking in the mirror and because you like. How long were you doing, how, how into ecstasy did you get? Then this, for like a week straight, you know, but, you know, then doing here and there, but I never was, um, again, the only thing that I, I, I really abused, I mean, when I say abused, like, like, I mean, at the end I was at 35, 40 pills of a, a day, yeah. And but the other stuff was more not that I'm not that I'm um, co-signing for or saying that it's good, but um, you know, you know I do. But powder, you know, the blow wasn't like it used to be. You know, it's all chemically now and stepped on. And were you doing it when it was like the pharmaceutical blow? Did you get a lot of that stuff? I did my first rail, man, um, and it tasted like. It was like real, like blow, like you know what I mean, like that. You get numb, and it was, 
And plus, it, it's kind of fucking cool with the chicks, you know. Well, they like it. Yeah, you know, you do a rail off a chick's tit. How often are you doing rails off chick's tits? Well, I mean, I never. I don't think I ever did a rail off anybody's I mean, tits. I, get a lot of, I know that I didn't. I get a lot of pussy, bro. Well, that's. I mean, I'm really curious. I sell dreams, dude. Well, we're gonna get to your dream selling and you're wanting to pimp my father out in a second. <laughs> but I'm curious about um about like all of the bullshit or like the sort of and I don't want to offend you, but the crime that got you into prison and all that stuff, like because you weren't well, off. It was you, bankruptcy fraud, though. Oh, it was tax fraud that got you into prison. No, well, well they claimed it was bankruptcy they, fraud. It was from claimed, Wayne Gretzky's they, house. They claimed that. They said, I mean, I sold a piece of seven hundred dollars furniture, but they wanted me. It was a, that's a whole different story. It was a terrible, terrible fucking thing. Yeah, because what I did is I caught some. I caught some very powerful people doing some very bad things. And they were scared of me, and the only way they can stop me was to put me in prison. And but again, I, I, I don't want to sound like somebody making excuses because, I mean, did I do some things or a lot of things that I wasn't proud of or, or I'm not proud of? Yeah, but did I do something where I deserve my freedom to be taken away? No. Right. But but what happened happened, and um, I don't live back there. Okay, even when I got to prison. I became someone. I actually became this guy named Gabriel Allen. Who there was a series of, of, of books written by a guy named Daniel Seal, Daniel Silva, and and um, because you'd have to check out and and just to, to, to live and to fight through that in that cage, you know. You, you I mean, again, you're talking to a guy that never read a book. Um, before prison and never jerked off before prison. Right. So I not only became like a... And all of a sudden you're masturbating and reading constantly. Well, I'm constantly. like fucking Benihana, dude. <laughs> right. I mean, I, I, I... You know, jerk off, read, read, jerk off, jerk, read, jerk off, jerk off, read, read, jerk off. Well, I mean, what else can you do? Right. And think. And you never... There were no drugs in jail. There was... There was not where I was, man. I was in PC. You know, I was in, you know... You know, protective custody because they said if we let me out and, you know, with the general population they'd kill you you know I right said, would it kill me was it lonely in there yeah man it was rough you know I mean like I said there's a lot of time to think and and um but you know you fight through that shit you know you either you either you, like the guy said and you know Morgan Freeman said and in that one movie you Shawshank get, Redemption you get busy living and you get busy dying right 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 look the, the bottom line is 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 what's happened to me and and the fact I'm still above ground because there was a car wreck there was other things and and you know there's also times you find God and that's that time when you're laying in bed and like or not in bed but you're just like God please get me through this and I swear I'll never do it again if you get me through this God it's funny how you can find God when you and you're in your worst. It's your worst. Totally. You know, I found God just just because I found God just because I had to, and I didn't even understand. Like, I didn't understand God. I still don't necessarily understand God, but I, I was told, you know, when I got clean, you better have a higher power, or you're not going to be able to make it. Yeah. And I was like, I, I thought it was all bullshit. Yeah. You know, and I didn't like the sound of it. I still like don't like to say yeah. I found God. It yeah. makes me feel uncomfortable. Yeah. But like. I fucking prayed to a higher power and yeah. I got sober, yeah. you know, and I like did it like as almost not like as a joke, but I did it because someone told me to. Yeah. So and, I did it. And, 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 and again, you know, 
it's all about hope, man. And and if if you don't have hope, you know you're fucked. Okay. In all that misery, you were never like tempted to take pills or anything. In what misery? You know, jail and and losing that money and blah blah blah. No, the pills. The pills became that. That was the easiest thing for me to stop. Right. The opiates were because. What was the hardest thing to change? Um. Probably my lifestyle. I mean. Like, you know, like people used to say I bought my own jet, you know, and I mean, I had all kinds of schemes and stuff, you know, where I'd tell my wife, you know, hey, I, there's a new rehab in Paris and um, I want to you know, do this for us. And again, I'm not proud of this, but, um, you know, because in the off season, man, like you're just not used to being home every day. Right. And plus, you know, I, I'm, you know, I, I was a, I mean, I was a pussy hound, too. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you. Um, it was the thrill of the kill. So you might have been a sex addict, couldn't that's you? That's not a sex addict. It was more about the thrill of the kill. You, but I think that's it was probably... Almost, it was more about hearing these words. I can't believe I'm doing this. Like, if I had a dollar every time I heard that, I'd be so rich. Because now... To hear a woman say that. Yeah, you know, it's a thrill. Like, now, like... It's, so it's fucking. It's a process. I got to take a dick pill. I got to fucking get through this and that. Can't come. It's like, so like the the process and like, I mean, so again. But when I was young, in thirty, and could have a million dollars, you know, sent to me in, in in twenty minutes, you know, you pretty much could, you know, like you're king of the world. You know, I walked around like I had a fifteen inch cock. You know. Did you? No, man. I well, that's that's the next transition. I when I heard you on on Howard <laughs> in 2016, you know, the headline was that you were getting paid to fuck women, you know, and uh, older women companions, you know, like yeah. Like, the quote I read today was, "I didn't fuck them because their bones were too brittle." Yeah, well, you could hurt them, you know, and it was more about companions. I'm a giver, bro. I give back. I help people. Is that still what you do? Is that part of your your life now? Well, How did you get into that anyway? Well, Beverly Hills, man, land of the great pretenders, la la land. Did man. somebody pimp you out for that? Well, I don't know. I met an older woman. Someone, you know, she needed a companion. She was loaded. Her husband died, and um, again, you know, it wasn't so much about the money. Um, well, kind of about the money, but it was more about. Um, um, I like helping people, you know? I mean, except this one. I had this one that wanted to relive her prom days, and that was fucking rough, bro. I mean, she wanted to make out, like, and, ah, man. What was it? What was it? Yeah, it's like an 80-year-old woman. Like, plus, you know, you're dealing with, like, an older woman, and you're dealing with a gray bush. I mean, like, because they're not shaving. And so, wait, you just look left. I just said look left. And that's how you dealt with it. You look left. And you're not doing it anymore? You're still doing it? Nah, I was so down on that, you know. I mean, uh, again, you know, um, but but I like to help people. I give back. You so know? that whole thing was just, you know, giving. Yeah, It was man. to make them feel loved and Right, special. they're lonely. They're lonely. And then, like I said, you know, you can't really, like, you know, pound it too hard because their bones are very brittle. How long did you do it for? 
Uh, about a year and a half, a couple years. You know? Howard loved that shit. That was like yeah. his favorite thing he ever heard in his life. Well, he, he loved it because it's all truth. And then Howard had me bring in some validators, too. I remember. Yeah, and be, because... Um, it was, you know, I'm, I'm taping taping there on Valentine's Day, actually, um, again, in the studio. Please say hello for me. I will. I will. Please. I'll tell him your story, man. Tell him my story. Tell him, uh, yeah, tell him when I snuck in great uh, story. high on drugs, high on everything, and I yeah, gave him an award. award. I love that. He's going to be like, I remember that kid. There's and no Robin way. Robin figured you out. There's no way he'll remember. But um, Robin figured you out, though, huh? Well, she said, look at him. He's obviously high. <laughs> And then Howard was like, get the fuck out of here. And he's like, I'm going to use your award for a doorstop or I'm going to beat you over the head with it. Um, and I love Howard. You it's know, funny like, how we think, you know, we're getting away with it, you know. And like, I, it's funny because uh, years later, I had a friend who worked at E and they gave me the video of me on the Stern show. And like, if you look at it, I don't look high, I look totally clear headed. And um, it was just like it's you're just, lit up like a tree. Oh, dude, I, I couldn't have been higher. Like, like you know, you're in the big leagues when you arrive there. You know what I mean? Totally. That's the fucking. But you were in the big leagues. You were the top of the big leagues. You won a World Series. Yeah. You know? Well, I mean, and then if anyone would have told me like, "Hey, you're going to write a bestseller," um, like I would have laughed at him when I was playing because I wasn't very good in English, and so like. The hardest thing I've ever done in my life was write that book, but um, and I wrote it myself, by the way, and and so I became. became I heard the editor's concern was that there were too many bros, too many words, words bro and dude. That was the editor's only concern with that book. Yeah, well, I mean, I used the word pussy fifty-two times, Um, but the thing about it. Do you ever use? Pussy to describe someone who's cowardly or just a woman's yeah, vagina? No, no. I or call both. people pussies all the time. Okay. In baseball, when I couldn't, when for instance, if they were too far away from me, I would just put the single down. You know, say, you fuck, hey, motherfucker, hey. You'd show the diamond, the diamond with your fingers. Yeah, the pussy, the yeah. pussy with your fingers. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, because, like. Who's the biggest pussy you played against in baseball? There was, there was, he wasn't so much a pussy, but he was a dick. Uh, the biggest dick I played was Don Mattingly? Barry Bonds. Oh, Barry Bonds. Yeah, motherfucker hung me out to dry in an all star game. And, you know, I, you know, instead of walking him intentionally, like I told him in between innings, I said, from now on, I'm going to tell our pitchers just to throw you in the fucking neck. But that being said, he, let's forget about do you like him or not like him. Was he the greatest player to ever play? Absolutely. He was. So so what's crazy, again, is the three greatest players in the history of baseball are not in the Hall of Fame. Okay. Pete Rose. Bonds and Roger Clemens. And Roger Clemens won, remember. He beat the feds. Right. Okay, but, but again... You know, I had a big, like, knockdown drag out with, with the Hall of Fame committee when I was in Cooperstown signing autographs one, you know, um, two years ago. When I said, I want to know what the fucking threshold is to make somebody a bad enough person to get in the Hall of Fame. Because all these other people were using amphetamines. Everyone knows that. And what they say? And I said, they didn't know what to say. I said, what's the fucking threshold? What makes somebody a bad enough person where they can't get in? I said, is this about baseball, or is this about being like, hey, I'm all for great guys. Maybe you have a, a great guy, guy uh, Hall of Fame. But if this is about baseball, you don't think that those guys, what about somebody beats, beats their wife? 
Okay. Well, what about that? That's okay. So what is what is the threshold? And then they wouldn't answer me. I said, I want to know what the fucking threshold is. Okay. So they escorted me out. Well, wouldn't you say, because I'm not, you know, I don't know very much about baseball. Well, it's but, boring. But what I would baseball. imagine it's, it's is boring. because when a guy takes a fucking, because like, you know, and who knows, how, you know probably how long people were taking uh, performance enhancing drugs, you know, steroids, whatever. And like, but it wasn't on the horizon. It wasn't on anyone's radar. And when it became on somebody's radar... And they start testing everybody, and you find out that Barry Bonds is taking it, and he's the fucking greatest baseball player to ever live. They're like, we feel cheated because he's taking this shit. But had people been taking these drugs all along? Well, the thing about it is, so look, here, here's the old Bonds. If you take Bonds' years in Pittsburgh when he was skinny and wasn't on any drugs, okay, his, his stats would still be fifth best overall. Right. Okay, so, I mean, at, at the end of the day... I mean, he was an asshole, though, huh? Yeah, he was just a dick. I mean, he was selfish, and and you know what I mean. And but but I mean, like, let me give you an example of of one of the years he had. I led the league in walks two separate years. Okay, one year I had 120 walks. One year I had like 118. This motherfucker led the league one year. He had 275 walks. Seventy fucking five of them were intentional. Okay, I mean, meaning like they didn't want to pitch him. Like it was almost like little league numbers. Right, it was crazy. Right, and see what, what Bonds would do is is and what people don't understand when they're watching baseball is when you get a good pitch to hit, you've got to fry, you have to drive that ball fair and, and put it in play and take advantage of it, not foul it off. Because the pitchers are very the see, there's a reason why last year Major League Baseball the strikeout the, 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 there was more strikeouts than ever in history of baseball because the pitchers are so good now and they figured out how to get hitters out and that is to deceive the hitter. See, life and baseball are kind of the same. You're always trying to get in a predictable situation. So if the count's two and zero, oh, you back when I put you think the guy's gonna throw you a fastball because he doesn't want to walk you now they'll throw you a curveball change up to throw off your timing because they have that confidence they can throw three pitches for strikes at any time right so the the game is much harder than you think but but that being said the players don't play right probably five percent of the players play right 95 don't but they get away with it because of their talent you still watch baseball no, I don't really watch baseball. It's 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 well. There's a few reasons. Number one is like everybody's like friends with everybody. They're all laughing and like. There's no real rivalries. Yeah, like right. when I play, like if I saw someone talking to the other team, I said, "Listen, that's a fucking enemy, dude." I see you talking to them again. We're fighting. Like we have one fucking motto here. We fucking we're gonna go to their house. We're gonna take their money and we're gonna fuck their women. Period. And if you fucking, you're hurt, out drug it. Get on the field. Did you often fuck other players' wives? No, I don't. <laughs> I never fucked with wives. I never fucked with friends. I mean, you didn't need to. I, I was ready for that story, though. Yeah, no, I never went there. That's, it only ends bad. I mean, understand some. The promise of money is actually more powerful than the money itself. The idea of becoming rich from well, well, the promise of money, I meaning like with a girl. See, once they get your money, 
you're, you got no leverage. Right. But but it's like it, it, they promise if you hit three hundred, we promise you we'll pay you twenty million. Right. Okay. So th- th- it's the chase. The promise of the money is what's more powerful. Once you get the money, then like. I don't feel so good today. I'm getting the same amount of money, so I think I'll take the day off. Right. You don't. You don't work as hard. Well, now when you're on a contract year, you're going to do whatever you have to do to get on the field. You go nuts because you're getting paid. You know, and so like they figured me out finally. Like every third year after you know I had three year contract, I'd hit three hundred. You know, party for two years, hit three hundred. The thing about the show is we talk about dopey stories, and dopey stories are like the most ridiculous. Drug stories you can think of. I got one. All right, hit I got it. a lot. But hit us, hit us with a good one. Okay, my boy Mickey Rourke, who's a mother, he's a fucking cocksucker. Um, owes me thirty fucking rand. And you hear me out there, Mickey? You pussy. I'm sure Mickey Rourke is constantly <laughs> listening to Dopey. Nah, but he, he listens to a lot of shit. But but when when. I went to, there was this, you probably heard of the place, it was famous, called Promises. Yeah, in Malibu. A, yeah, like, you, like at the time, you had to, to be cool, you had to go there. Uh-huh. I was like, when I got there, and I'll tell you how I got there, it was crazy. But, so, before I go, I was having me and work party and hanging out. And and before I go, you I, and work or you and Sheen? Me and, me and work. Okay. And it's, it's, this leads into Sheen, though. But, but. Um, I said, "Fuck! If I'm going in there, man, I'm gonna I gotta have about one more blowout." You know? Yeah. So I paid the money, you know, whatever, and I went to the Beverly Hills Hotel, and next thing I know, I have five bungalows, and next thing I know, I'm on my fucking tenth day, and promises keeps calling me, saying, "Where are you? Where are you?" I said, "Fuck! I'll be there, man. Fuck it." I said, "I'll be there," and finally, I get a call from the hotel manager, and it's, it's like getting bad. And he says, Mr. Dexter, your bill is, is now at 300000 And like a wake-up call. But And I happened to be like looking in the mirror. And like I had Mickey's fucking scarf on. I'm holding his little fucking dog. And like some clarity and reality hit me. And I'm like, wow, this is fucking bad. <laughs> this is fucking bad. I said, Mickey, roll it up. We're getting the fuck out of here. So it gets better, though. So I still got more shit. So what were you doing? That's a blow pill, you know, whatever. Everything but opiates, man. Opiates. opiates. So when you would do everything with opiates, what would you take? You'd take ecstasy, cocaine, like Xanax and shit? Yeah, I mean, Valium here and there. Uh, you ever take acid? No, I didn't. I took um, um, mushrooms once. What about uh, what about meth? Were you ever on meth out there? No. Okay. No, I don't. That was that, terrible drug. Isn't that like the biker's drug? It was a lot of people's drugs. Yeah. It's the gay's uh, drug. It's the biker's yeah. drugs. It's the people who can't yeah, get coke's drugs. Right, right. But, but again, remember, my whole deal was, wait, um, for a long time, at least when I played it, was, wait, it's FDA approved. It's fine. I'm not doing anything wrong. Like, really? Meaning, but so, so. When I finally rolled up and get in the limo and I got, you know, still got my group with me, the hangar honors, I parked that fucking limo right outside the gates of promise. Right. And, like, they say, okay, come in. I said, well, no, not yet. Because I'm going to finish my shit. That fucking limo stayed there five days, dude. Five days, okay? And finally I said, okay, open fucking up. I went in there and I obviously went to a coma for, like, four days. And I woke up. And like guys are bossing me around, like, like I'm saying, 
what the fuck? Remember, because when you got money and you're doing these things, you're, there's a sense of entitlement. Sure. Like you give the orders, you don't take them. So I said, I'm getting the fuck out of here. Fuck this, man. Okay? And so you know who saw me? Charlie Sheen. So I was in there with, you know, listen to this power group. I was the lowest man on the totem pole, okay? When I was there, you had Robert Downey Jr., Kiefer Sutherland, okay? Um, Tardy Sheen, um, um, Gregory Peck's kid, um, um, Nick Cassavetes, a big director who did yeah. Blow. Yeah. And, and then um, uh, me. I was like the lowest. I mean, because like, remember, Promises, it was like... To, you had to go there to be kind of cool. So um, Charlie said to me, and I knew Charlie, you know, um, from before. I had no idea he was there at the time, but we, we didn't start hanging out until much later. But but he said to me in this cool kind of way, he said, you know, bro, um, you can do what you want, but it gets better. He said, it gets better. And, and, he said, you should try it, you know. We'll hit some baseballs and this and that. And so, like, if he didn't do that, you know, like, um, like I was gone. And it's so weird because when you go full circle, you know, I had Charlie out a year before he was forced to come out. I had it all set up for him to go public before he was forced to go public. You mean with the HIV? Yeah, and, and being extorted and blackmailed and... It was, you know, it was that was a really difficult time. I was with him through that whole thing, and um, it was a, it was a tragedy. But all that's a direct result of, of drugs, right? I'm I'm curious, and 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 forgive me for this. You said you had gotten off of the opiates in Israel, but then you were at Promises. What were you primarily at Promises for? The party. But like, what was? What was the party exactly? It was mostly coke. Was it alcohol? Like, what was it? Yeah, it was everything. You know, every, everything, everything but you know, like um, the you know doing the powder, the alcohol, the you know mixing it up. But because remember, opiates didn't work anymore. Opiates were the opiates were, were was a dead end. There was no when you open the door, there was nowhere to walk. Right. I've been down that road. Opiates. So so remember. So what happened was, when I got off the opiates, it was like, okay, now I can fucking drink and party myself. Right, right. So I kind of went overboard. Right. Because it was like, okay, like, because getting off opiates, I never thought I would get off them ever. So, like, that was like, I won the fucking war. I just, now I can drink and do that. And then I started, like, getting kind of bad there, you know? And you started to drink alcoholically and stuff. Well, just, you know, just... Not normal, okay, and so again, but and remember, I didn't have the opiates in me because when you have the opiates in you, you can drink more because you have like yeah the taller, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. You, you like so now I'm starting to get a little bit soppy, and uh, you know, you know, once my guy Dino, he dropped these fucking Mercedes things off too. It's so funny, and but but. Again, it was, you know, and then I finally figured out the trifecta that took me years to figure out that that was, I thought, 
Irene made of the will, and that was, I told Charlie, look, man, here's all you need to do, bro. Adderall in the morning, cut it with a fucking Valium, and take Ambien at night, and you're straight. So that was your thing, amphetamines and benzos. Yeah. That was the thing. Yeah. Amphetamines mainly. Right. Amphetamines. And are you done with amphetamines now? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm old now. I mean, it's... After that promises run... Uh, I had six more countries, bro. Huh? I had six countries. What do you mean? I mean, I did that six offices. I had six countries. I did that in fucking Paris. I did that in fucking Italy. And all I did is have someone, one of my monkeys would pay the whatever it would cost. And I bought 30 days of flying around Europe chasing pussy. Right. I'm not proud of that, but it was like... It was an adventure. That's what you do when you're on that shit. Right. You, right. you don't make... You're not You're not making decisions that you would make, like you would make today and I would make today. Right. Because you're insane. Now, when I asked you, I asked you on Twitter, uh, are you clean now? And you were like, well, I have a few beers here and there. Yeah. And and how does that work? Because most people, most addicts can't fucking put anything in. If I, if I had a few beers, it would probably go bad for me it's, i think it has to do with age well, i know a lot of fucking drug addicts really? who are older but, than you and they can't see I'll be, I'll be 56 in 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 a few days and um it's just not the same man it's like you know because there's not the party there's not the, the there's not the reason you don't have the reason to get meaning it's just different now. I'm, and again, when you don't have the other stuff with it, um, for, for for me, it's been again. I'm, I'm, like, I'm just not. It's hard to get high when you get older. Again, the 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 fact that I'm an addict is a fact because like I lived and died with my with my pills my opiates and if I didn't have them I mean it sounds like you lived and died for a bunch of things like when you discovered the reinventing the wheel with the with the Adderall cut with the Valium and I agree that was I did the same stuff trifecta yeah it worked it It was I never took Ambien but like I'm saying you're an addict because you're an addict like you I like the Ambien and I think you're an addict with your Pussy hounding. I think you're yeah. an addict with your fucking pills, yeah. and I think you're an addict probably in sports, and you're probably an addict with um, with uh, possibly alcohol. Yeah, I'm an I'm 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 an I'm I'm an addict. I'm a addict. I'm a, I have an addictive personality, no doubt. You ever and, try meetings or no? Um, I mean, look, I don't I don't I don't shun against them, but um. I'm just not into the hugging and all that, you know, and I didn't really need... So you remember, I had three years of probation. Right. And so, like, my probation officer told me, this is with the feds, he said, listen, how it works here is if you get caught, when we test you, and by the way, I'm going to test you, you're not going to know when, because they have so much money. And he says, if... Like, you want to party one weekend and, like, you know, get some girls and, like, maybe you get away with it, you know? Maybe time it right. But if you time it wrong... You're fucked. You're back in prison. And you start your sentence over. He says, so what will happen is I'm going to call you up and I'm going to say the federal marshals are on their way out, okay? And they're taking you back to prison. You're going to start your sentence over. And he said, I, I like you. 
you make my job easy, but I'm not losing my job for you. Right. So my program beat the fuck out of AA seven days a week and twice on Sunday. Right. There's no newcomer chips in my program. Right. You're either going in or you're not going in. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So it was easy to stay off drugs because they'd Pearl Harbor me anywhere. Right. I mean, like I'd come on to go see my kids play. I'd have to get a traveling pass. I'd come off the plane in like Syracuse and there'd be a PL waiting for me. And I'd say, okay, let's go. And I ain't got much to look at, but I'll hit the cup, you know. But but it was easy and it felt good to knowing that you're clean. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's incredibly satisfying. I mean, for me, I love being clean. It makes my it's life. It's just the opiates, bro. The opiates was the hardest thing, man. So anybody out there that that's fighting, and, and, and again, the majority of people that that are having drug problems are opiate related. And all I can tell you is that you can get clean, and once you do, you literally get out of a different kind of prison. Because, as you know, you were in prison. You were in opiate prison. Oh, yeah. And, and without them, without them, the pain is... So you have to... Once you can get through that, and, and the key is to, to make sure you go to the right... Um, detox place so they know what they're doing so they can alleviate a lot of the, the pain but you have to know and anyone that doesn't admit this is lying to themselves because we've all tried it again it'll be different this time it'll be different this time it's not different okay it doesn't matter how long you take off once you go if you go back okay you're going to be in the same place Higher lows, lower highs, faster and faster and faster. So why do it? Only only a fucking idiot would do it, right? Because the only you know what's waiting for you: pain, misery, loss. Fucking, you're not getting high. And you feel you feel like you're free now, though. Oh, you feel free, freer. I mean, to me, getting off getting off opiates, like. Like I said, I went to Israel. I couldn't get off them. I mean, and like I, I could do pretty much anything I always wanted, but I, like this pill, these, they controlled my life. So you think? I mean, because it's just the weird thing to me is like because you did party afterwards, and you did find yourself in rehab afterwards, and you did find yourself in precarious situations afterwards, and the only reason you didn't take opiates is because of the physical addiction. Right. And, well, and 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 knowing what's waiting. Right. But you but fucked I made, with everything but, else. You yeah, I did. You know? So I justified that too. Right. You know. But that was you know you're talking back you know ten years ago. Of course. And I just want to be clear because yeah. we're doing a show about about yeah. drugs addiction dumb shit yeah. including recovery. At the end of the day, man. Look, we all know that um, if you take anything that 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 alters your mind and and you're an addict that. Um, it's probably not going to end good, you know? right? Before you know? before we finish, give me the craziest story uh, from baseball traveling, craziest drug story, or in, at home, whatever. Craziest baseball story. Yeah, well, you know what I tried to do one time is, I thought like, wait a second, like if I'm taking amphetamines. Like blow will really be better, right? 
But she blows up there because, you know, you get jumpy and shit. And, you know, like when you take amphetamines, it's kind of like when you take off in an airplane. Yeah, it's, it's like, gradual. Yeah, man, you just, you're climbing uh-huh. and you, you kind of level out and then you descend slowly. For his blow, it's like you're... It was rocket. So, like, it was a Sunday day game, I'll never forget. And, you know, I used to come through the stadium early and I went in the bathroom at the stadium and um, railed up. Okay. In Philly? Yeah, and, you know, rail, powder fucking city. And tried to, and I was fucking, it was the most miserable. It, like, it was like, God damn, man, it was, it was bad. It was, but there's been a lot more. I mean, like I said, um, like, you know, on the road, they have parties, and I used to, like, show chicks, hey, you know, what, take my steroids and load my pen up, you know, and watch them. And pop it in there, you know, uh, you know, because uh, again, what are you gonna do? The next guy, the, the guy next to you is taking steroids. Let him make thirty million, and you get fired, and have to get a real job and take orders from somebody and make sixty grand. I mean, so like, if you didn't do it, you you won't. couldn't keep up. Yeah, so like, so you almost were forced to do to to, to compete to stay up there because like. The amount of it's all about money. Money changes the way people think. And I told Bud Selig this. I told Major League Baseball, your problem isn't drugs. Your problem are is steroids. Right. Okay. Steroids because see they help your performance, and when your performance gets enhanced, you get paid more money. Right. Okay. And so at the end of the day. Everybody was doing them. Right. Because it's an investment in yourself, basically. Yeah, man. And, and, you know, like, you think about consequences later. That's what drugs do. Right, right, right. Now, before we go, Mookie Wilson. Good guy. Loved him. Loved Mookie Wilson. He's my favorite Met. Just had some bad breath. Did he? Yeah, he had some bad fumes, but that's not... Out of all the Mets, who had the worst breath? Mookie? Oh, yeah, I know. Really? Yeah, but but great guy. Because remember, me and him competed for a position. Yeah, you platooned. And so, but we got along great. Okay, cool. And Mookie was cool, man. Yeah, he seemed cool. Cool fucking dude, man. Right on. Well, thank you so much. I love Mookie, the Mookster, man. Yeah, you know, it's great, and and, uh, you're doing a great thing, and, 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 you know, like I said... I'll, I'll pop this out there on social media and try to get you some some other people that can help because you can you get me Daryl on the show with his ministry and his uh, I can I want Daryl yeah just just understand some with strawberry um, I had to shower that guy for fucking six years okay? and it was traumatizing okay he's hung like a fucking swamp mule meaning. He's the only player in baseball that ever had to tape his cock to his leg. I mean, this guy had a hammer on him, bro. Why did everybody else tape their cocks to their leg? No, he's the only. Oh, he had to he actually he do that. Run. Well, I mean, he's, I nicknamed him Soul Pole. Wow. I mean, but I'll get Straw. Straw's clean. Yeah. He looks fucking great. Yeah. Straw. He's my first roommate when I got to the big leagues. Let him know about the show and see I if will. Come on. I'll get him on. I'll call him up and get him on. And Lenny, thank you so much for coming. Awesome, man. Love having thanks. you on. Yeah, man. Right thanks. on. Sorry it took so long. Nah, it was good. So fucking Lenny Dykstra. How crazy is that? Uh, I grew up obviously in Manhattan, and Lenny Dykstra was a big deal, and uh, it was pretty pretty fucking crazy. To have him on the show. And uh, the craziest thing was that when he showed up, my dad was on his way out uh, to my sister's to get dinner. And uh, my dad wanted to take a picture with him. And he's like, wow, Lenny Dykstra, you're a hell of a ball player. 
I'm, I'm a Yankee fan myself, but you're a hell of a ball player. And Lenny Dykstra was like, you're a really good looking man. And, um, and one thing I wanted to say was that you could see dollar signs in Lenny Dykstra's head because Lenny Dykstra thought he could pimp out my father, uh, which is just hysterical. But my dad is a very handsome guy, so you can't. And Lenny is, uh, he knows how to turn a buck, if you know what I mean. Um, but Lenny Dykstra, uh, it was cool that he came on. Obviously, he's lived quite a life. Um, that fucking rehab with Mickey Rourke and Robert Downey Jr. and Kiefer Sutherland, it's like, what a crazy thing that is. And if, if any of those guys are listening to the show, you know, you guys are totally welcome to come on if you wanted to. I have a feeling that Robert Downey Jr. is going to be the one. He's going to be the one to break Dopey into the mainstream. If it wasn't Lenny Dykstra, it's totally Robert Downey Jr. Now, um, it's been a fucking hard week uh, over here. Um, my daughter got very sick, sinuses, and, and Linda got sick, and Linda's back went out, and I had fucking catering jobs every day where I was getting up at 5 in the morning. And... Um, fucking dragging my ass all over the place. And last episode, uh, when I was finishing it, I was fucking sick. And um, <laughs> afterwards, somebody wrote me, they wrote me a message on Facebook. They were like, Dave, you really seemed like your, own, your old sweet self, but um, you sounded really mucusy, which is, I think, a great adjective, mucusy. And I wrote back, um, I, I had put a whole bit about complaining about how bad I sounded. I was like, but I didn't feel like complaining. And he wrote back, um, he wrote back, but we love to hear you complain. So I'm going to complain now for a minute. My life is very hard. It never stops. Fucking work, dopey, family, work, dopey, family, the train, waiting tables, my dad. My dad got strep throat last week. It's just like, it's been wall to wall. But, um, and this is one of those moments where um, somebody would say, you're probably going to get triggered to use. And I don't say this, you know, to prove like how far along I am in recovery or whatever. It doesn't trigger me to use. And um, I didn't go to a meeting this week. It makes me realize that I need meetings. Like I find myself uh, in fights in places that I wouldn't normally be in fights, getting angry at people I normally wouldn't be getting angry with. And, like, that's why I go to 12-step meetings as a sort of fucking spiritual valve. I also got an email from some guy who was saying how great he thinks Dopey could be, how big it could be, but that my cursing inhibits uh, the potential of how big it could be. And I wonder if that is true. If you guys have an opinion, send an email, dopeypodcast at gmail.com. Now I'm going to read an email that I really liked. It's uh, from uh, Tanisha, and the subject I loved is, No more Yankee, my wanky. The donger need food. And he writes, or she writes, uh, I think it's a she, but I'm not sure. Uh, Hey, Dave, I'm new to the Dopey Nation. I first heard about Dopey on This American Life. Even though I know that Chris passed, I decided to start from the beginning. I just listened to episode 43, and I wanted to comment uh, on the discussion about your late arrival to the game of affliction. I, too, am afflicted. I'm almost 44, and I've been clean for just about 18 years. 
It's impressive. I got clean at 26. I don't believe in the gateway theory because the first drug I ever did was a speedball. Before that first speedball went into my arm with a shared needle, no less, I had never touched a drop of alcohol, smoked weed or cigarettes or done anything else. And yes, that first hit felt like Jesus was swaddling me in a warm, sunny field of flowers, and I knew I was all in. Everything made sense. Everything clicked, and it felt just right. I was instantly in love. I was 18. Over the next six years, I tried everything else except PCP. But I always came back to my beloved heroin. I guess I just like to start at the top and work my way down. Just like everyone else with the affliction, I have a myriad of tales of woe, self-destruction, and self-loathing, as well as some funny stories. Stories that are funny now and funny to anyone else with the affliction, but not stories that would be funny to someone who isn't. Even after all these years, I still love it. Sometimes I miss it, and in my moments of sadness, I want it, but I know that it ruins me and I stay away from it. Don't get me wrong, I'm not white-knuckling it by any means. My life is good and I have too much to lose, a husband and three kids. I just wanted to share that not everyone tiptoes into the water of affliction. Some of us dive in headfirst. I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast. It makes me laugh. I'm reminded of things that are from a completely different life. Thanks for the laughs and for speaking so candidly about a subject that is often only spoken of with sadness and despair. I don't regret those years of active use because I learned so much about myself. Keep up the great work. Toodles, Tanisha. Love that, um, Tanisha. Thank you very much. Um, I've been getting a ton of really, really beautiful emails and messages, and I really love to hear from you guys. So keep sending them in. I would love more voicemails. I would love some straight-up dopey stories. Um, Dopey always could use dopey stories. So send in a dopey story. I've said this till I'm blue in the face, but I'll keep saying it. Make it around five to seven minutes because that is the sweet spot. Make it funny. Make it ridiculous. Send it in. Be active. We love to hear from you. Uh, again, I love uh, hearing songs and stuff. I never got to thank Joey Pepper. I don't know if he's still listening or not. He sent me these uh, these dopey decals, these really, really intense stickers, but it seems like the application process is, is very complicated, and I struggle reading directions. So I, And I've also been really, really, really busy. Like, um, And it sounds so lame to say it, but I'm like going from one thing to the next. Um, and just the baby. You know, there's also a whole other thing that's top secret that I'm keeping from you guys, but eventually I will tell you about. I think I'm going to play you uh, a dopey voicemail and I'm going to be out. So here is a dopey voicemail. Hold on for one second. It's from this woman and she doesn't want me to say her name, but I don't remember the name she says on the voicemail. So here we go. The audio quality isn't perfect, but you know, what are you going to do? Hi, Dopey Nation. I... My name is, we'll just say Natalie. I don't really want to use my real name. But um, I actually was just listening to the most recent episode of Dopey with Dave and his long-time friend Rob. And I decided, since I'm on kind of a long road trip right now, to grow the Dopey Nation with some Dopey. And I wanted to tell the story about when I went through meth psychosis and basically lost my mind. So um, I am six years, a little over six years clean off um, IV meth and heroin. Um, I 
pretty much only did heroin to maintain. I really like the uppers a lot more, um, and that was more of my drug of choice, the meth. Um, so towards the end of my addiction, my boyfriend at the time, but he's actually now my husband, um, and that's a completely different story. Crazy, but completely different. Maybe I'll send in another voice memo at a different time. But we were together during our entire addiction and still together now. And um, we were staying in random hotels all the time and meeting all these crazy people. And one day, um, we had been up for three days. We always call it the three-day syndrome. Day one and two, you're fine. And then on day three, you completely lose it. And we were in a hotel room trying to just settle down for the night. And I was going through complete mess psychosis. So I thought people were outside the door. I thought people were trying to break into our hotel room and and just off-the-wall stuff. And, and that was in between me on the carpet surfing for drugs that were not there, that never got dropped there, and tearing up the carpet and sideboards in the hotel. Um, but my husband was like, you need to take a shot of heroin and settle down now. And so I did a shot of heroin, but the mess that we got, I don't know if it had bath salt in it or something, but I wasn't able to settle down like it usually would with the heroin. Um, so I was just going further and further and further into meth psychosis. I was basically wrapping my head in black clothing and tried to like dress up as a ninja. I was going, look, peeping out the people. I put some tissue in the people because I thought people were looking in. And then my poor husband, he was not going through meth psychosis at that time and he was having to take care of me. And so I don't know what happened, but eventually I passed out. I think he ended up giving me Xanax, and then I passed out. And then when I woke up in the morning, um, he had passed out and was, like, holding me, basically, probably holding me because I was trying to break out of his arms or something in the middle of the night. But I look over to the door, and there all of our luggages were just stacked in front of the door, covering the bottom of the door and everything. And I looked to my husband, and I waked him up, and I said, Honey, why are all our luggages in front of our door? Like, they were stacked strategically in front of the door. And he's like, Honey, you were screaming and crying that people were coming by our door and throwing shards of meth under the door. And it was scaring you because you didn't want to do any more meth. And so... I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I didn't remember that at all. And he was like, you wouldn't stop crying and rocking back and forth. So I eventually gave you a Xanax, stacked the luggage in front of the door, and held you until you just fell out. And I was laughing so hard. I could not believe that that was scaring me, like people throwing more mess under the door. Like I was just so far gone and had done way too much mess that I didn't want to do anymore. And anyone who's done that and has gone through psychosis like that, you literally get to that point where you just have done so much and you just need to fall out. And that's basically the point I was at. And I didn't want to do any more at that time. 
but obviously when I woke up the next day, I wanted to do more, and we ended up going on a run for several more weeks and experiencing the most craziest things in my life. And, yeah, so that's my dopey story. Um, I'm not sure if it's good enough to be put on the show, but I thought I would give it a shot. Um, And like I said, over six years clean. Um, I'm about to be an attorney. Um, I was in and out of jail, had felonies on my record, misdemeanors. I basically messed my life up to the fullest. And I have worked so hard to get that back and have been blessed with amazing blessings. And I just want to say that I think it all, I give it all the sobriety and I wouldn't be where I am today about to be an attorney um, without sobriety. So um, I guess bye-bye for now and toodles for Chris. Bye. So thank you, Natalie, for your meth psychosis voicemail. Now we do the thank yous. That's the new the new thing on the on Dopey is to do thank yous at the end. So we're going to thank Lenny Dykstra. Uh, I hope Lenny Dykstra listens and retweets. Motherfucker, get Daryl Strawberry on the show. I want to thank Tanisha for the amazing uh, voicemail. And I'm sorry I confused, confused you with a guy. Um, I want to thank um, Linda's cousin Mark of the Mark and Lowell show for sending me the clip of Howard Talking about the Dopey Podcast. Obviously not our Dopey Podcast. Uh, I want to thank Howard Stern for everything he does. Love Howard. And I want to thank uh, my friend Harold, who did uh, that song at the beginning, Dopey Nation. Uh, we're all in. So alive. Ha- Harold has a T-shirt company and an Instagram account called Health Collective 666. So check it out, Health Collective 666. I want to thank uh, Dopey Nation. I want to thank the sick and suffering addicts in and outside of the rooms. And um, I want to thank Sam for his tireless work. And Sam wanted me to thank the addicts south of the border in Mexico way. So if you are Mexican and you are listening to Dopey, send in a voicemail, send in an email. Gracias, mi amigos. Um, All right, well... I'm going to end the show the way I always end it, but I'm also going to play the full uh, front theme song at the back. I'm not going to close it with Good So Bad. I'm going to close it with this tune. Our theme song, or technically our theme song, is called If I'm Not Home, I'm Out Walking Around. Uh, Chris and I played it at some point. We actually played it on an episode where... uh, we recorded it in his parents' pool house in uh, Southampton. And um, Chris always was very impressed with this song. And it's like one of uh, the better recordings that any band I ever was in did. I wrote it uh, on heroin and recorded it with a bunch of really, really great musicians. And obviously every show that I do, when there's a lot of alone time especially, it makes me miss Chris even more. Uh, the show was... Um, Way different with Chris, but obviously there's nothing I can do about what happened. And uh, living with his death is a weird and sad thing. And I'm sure it's harder for uh, his family and it's harder for Annie. And uh, and it's weird how to hear from you guys, especially the new listeners who uh, are going back and discovering how uh, beautiful and fun and uh, unique Chris was. So uh, we'll say uh, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris, uh, who we will always miss. 
and later.
Until I get some money in my pocket Then I guess I'll just have to walk around my neighborhood But I want to be good so bad want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had And I want to take a ride up in the sky Watch this aeroplane just pass me by And I want to see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of these people what it means to be alive But I want to be good so bad Want to be so good, so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Shadows getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand Shadows getting smaller and smaller And it's time to where I stand And I wonder would they pay it any mind When I leave this busted city far behind I'll take the high road however far it winds because peace and love are very, very, very hard to find And I want to be good so bad want to be good so bad, so bad I want to be good so bad Bad desire's all I ever had Damn it, all these suckers make me mad And it's all I ever had And it's all I ever had Suckers make me mad and I wanna call my dad and it's all I ever had, it's all I ever had, and it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had. And these suckers make me mad and it's all I ever had, and I wanna call my dad and it's all I ever had, and it's all I ever had. And it's all I ever had.